Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Uh, Today, we're going to be speaking about a subject that we get so many emails and calls and texts and and people are desperate because they've been told they have kidney disease and they don't know what they're supposed to eat. Today, we're going to be speaking to Katie Wilkins. She's a renal dietitian and nutrition and fitness manager at Northwest Kidney Center. And Beth Shanaman. She's a registered dietitian and also is with the Northwest Kidney Center. So welcome to the show. We are so happy to be here. You know, it's it's the most important thing in life is what are we going to have for dinner, right? <laughs> and when you have when you have um, kidney disease, you have to make better choices. So why don't you just talk a little bit about what are the stages of kidney disease? Absolutely, absolutely. When we talk about the stages of kidney disease, sometimes you'll see it called CKD stages one through four, one through five. Um, stage one just means we have some knowledge that there are risks that you might have kidney disease. If you have a transplant, it moves you back to stage one because we recognize that you've had kidney disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stage two is a point where we are monitoring that you have identified further risk factors like high blood pressure or diabetes that really means that the doctor is monitoring your care or if your numbers have shown up when you go see the doctor and it's shown that maybe there's uh, some question about your kidney function. Stage three is the point where they say, yep, we're seeing some signs and we'd love you to see a kidney doctor to make sure that we're monitoring all the right things. Stage four is that ongoing monitoring labs and knowing that uh, that we're seeing signs of the kidney disease and other impacts it has on the body. And stage five is the point where you want to think about, uh, is transplant the right uh, fit for me? Uh, If I do dialysis, what kind of dialysis would I want? Or an equally valid decision that, nope, that I would not want to treat this. I would just like to live the rest of my days knowing that I'm that I have this but I don't want to actively treat it. Well, you know, that's um, it's so important to know because we did an interview on GFR, and I think people can look that one up, the stages of kidney disease. Because, you know, you if you're 80 years old, you're probably going to be in some stage um, of two or three just because of the aging process. And I love that uh, the Dr. Rosansky spoke about that. So it's really important to educate yourself and, and you know, what, um, what diets can cause kidney disease? Well, that's a really good question. How about if I take that one? Um, so, you know, um, I, I think there there is sort of an underlying um, issue with uh, nutrition and kidney disease, and I, I'm a big proponent of uh, watching salt intake. Um, you know, around the world, humans eat too much salt. This is not just a problem in the United States. Um, the World Health Organization recommendations are for 1,500 milligrams a day. Most Americans eat over twice that. 
And of course, there are places in the world where people even eat more salt. Um, so I kind of like to compare salt to arsenic, uh, another naturally occurring white powder that you probably wouldn't add to your food. So well, there's a lot of documentation now that um, high salt diets damage the kidney and cause high blood pressure through through high blood pressure, really. Um, but uh, actually cause constriction of the blood vessels when you eat it. So, you know, it is a, a really toxic chemical that we add to our food voluntarily or we let other people add to our food. And so that's probably the biggest, um, why I'm such a big proponent of everyone, not just people who have diagnosed kidney disease, but everyone should be limiting their salt. Uh, I had to manage my sodium my whole entire life. And now with my fourth transplant, um, I have to actually make, eat a little bit of salt. I'm not used to it, but just to keep my blood pressure up because it's so low. But I, I agree with you. I mean, you go out to dinner and you wake up like a balloon the next day. And, you know, I have a, f- a great functioning kidney. And there's so much salt. You can feel it in your fingers and your, you know, your like, oh, I don't feel so great. It was fun eating it, but doesn't feel so great afterwards. So. Yeah, well, and you know, the, the real statistic now that is kind of appalling is that 90% of the salt you eat, Lori, someone else has added to your food. And it's not your friends or your mother. It's somebody you don't know whose really only incentive is to sell their product, right? And they add salt because it makes bad food taste better, so it enhances the flavor of poor quality ingredients, and it lets things stay on the shelf longer. So both of those are more marketing decisions, not health decisions, right? And we're letting somebody else make those. Well, like Doritos. I mean, Doritos, I mean, they have that sweet, salty, and and they're addictive. And I also, yeah. um, you know, read a little bit about some of the different countries because when they would cook meat, sometimes it would start to spoil a little bit. So they used more salt and seasoning to get rid of that, you know. And so I think a lot of it comes from our ancestors. Like, let's just add more salt. But now we know better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, the really interesting thing, if you look at, um, th- there are, there's a, um, a website. It's the World Salt Awareness Group. They uh, do a Salt Awareness Week every year. So uh, we should all celebrate that. But uh, one of the things that they've pointed out recently is that, for example, I'm just going to use this brand example, um, Kellogg's Corn Flakes has uh, less sodium in the United States than it does, say, in Great Britain. And um, and Great Britain has less than, say, Kellogg's Corn Flakes in India. So those uh, products are reformulated. So a lot of times manufacturers say, oh, we can't reformulate those because, you know, well, they're already doing it. Uh, some countries that have fast food, say McDonald's or some of those big uh, corporations, they have limits on the amount of sodium that can be in those foods, and those companies meet them in those countries but not in other countries. That's fascinating. I know when we went to Australia, it was interesting on how um – you know, you couldn't get ice for your cup to save your life. I mean, I was like going mm-hmm. crazy and just how different countries. I mean, I like my soda or drinks with ice in it. And, you know, they don't have ice. <laughs> it was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, it is funny. So, like, what are some good choices that, um, you know, if you've been diagnosed with kidney disease, what kind of foods should you choose? Uh, I think the big global answer for that is the less processed foods, whole foods, foods Mm -hmm. you can picture growing. That's my rule of thumb. If you can picture it growing, it's probably going to be a healthy thing to eat. 
you can picture an apple growing on a tree. You can't picture a field full of Cheetos. <laughs> so that's, that's the bigger answer, and it's not fancy, and it's not marketed, but it's reality. Our bodies find healthier things that grow. When my kidneys were failing and I was going into stage three or four, my taste was really wonky. And now that I'm stage one again with transplant, and it's difficult because you want to find foods that have more flavor because I think your taste buds are a little bit dull. And um, I always use like Mrs. Dash and different things to spice up food that didn't have sodium in it. Because I, I don't know, do you hear that from other people who have kidney disease that they're yeah, tongue it's tastes actually a little different? very common. It's actually very common, Lori, and um, that's, it's actually your body kind of trying to protect you by making you not have an appetite so you won't eat really so much protein and salt, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I always tell people there's actually, if you think about it, there's five other flavors besides salt. There's sweet, sour, bitter, uh, umami, and hot, Okay, so sweet, think about um, how can you add sweetness to your foods? Well, you know, one really good thing is to serve um, serve foods with fruit. So if you're having, I don't know, shepherd's pie for dinner and you make a fruit salad to go with it, the sweetness in the fruit will enhance the flavors that you're missing in, in, the, in the shepherd's pie by, say, not salting it. Fruit purees are using um, jams or jellies as marinades uh, or in salad dressings, right? Those are all ways to add sweetness to your meal so that you don't you actually don't miss the salt because you're layering these flavors really the next one sour um, I'm a big fan of fruit vinegars they're super easy to make they're kind of expensive in the store but if you just buy a, a jug of uh, white cider or apple cider vinegar and put about half a cup of blueberries or raspberries or fresh sliced peaches or plums this time of year in that jug let it sit out for a week and then go ahead and uh, use that in uh, vinegar dressings for your salads or um, it's really great sprinkled on blasted vegetables right so there's the sour then you have bitter bitter is a taste of fresh herbs I always tell people to take the parsley challenge that's you go to the store you buy a a bunch of parsley you know it's they're they're pretty and it's pretty inexpensive you put it in a cup on your uh, kitchen sink and every time you cook you take a a handful of that and chop it up and throw it in whether it's meat meatloaf or uh, hamburger patties or you know uh, clam chowder whatever you're making you just put a cup of uh, you know a big handful of fresh greenery in there and it just pumps the flavor you won't even miss the salt right Mm -hmm. and then the umami flavor that's we get that from that's sort of a meaty brothy taste um actually comes from slow cooking so slow cooked tomato sauce on the back burner that simmered all day um parmesan cheese mushrooms have you mommy so kind of seeking out those foods how can i enhance those flavors and then of course last if you're a fan of heat and hot um ginger wasabi um you know there are lots of low sodium hot sauces you do kind of have to read the label some of them are a little bit higher in sodium but if you're just using a few shakes of it um worcestershire sour sauce right there are a whole bunch of uh of uh seasonings there that you can use so if you've got five things to choose salt is only one right Right. that's that's a great point i mean i love to put um cooking sherry in my food i don't know if that's a flavor but uh it seems to make everything better or or may I, i don't drink the sherry with putting the food and maybe that maybe that helps a little bit but um 
<laughs> it it's uh, when I make a mommy that you're getting there. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Um, I'm going to have to check out uh, that spice because I really love it. And I love to um, saute asparagus on the stove. Uh, and I just love it that way because it like, you know, it browns the edges and it makes it kind of a sweet flavor. It's very good. Um, yeah, so that is another technique is to kind of vary your um, cooking style and try grilling or broiling or, um, you know, different ways of cooking the same food. Sometimes that will really enhance um, the flavor. Like I, I mentioned, those oven-blasted oven vegetables, they really sort of, the natural sugars in them kind of caramelize. And uh, and so you get that sweet flavor and the sulfur burns off. And so you get, a, it's quite a different taste Um and again, you don't need sprinkle a handful of Parmesan cheese and a little bit of uh, raspberry vinegar on top of those, and that's all you need, right? Right. That's and I have been a f- big fan lately of having salmon lately. Just it's the easiest thing in the world to cook, and all you put is some lemon juice, a little cooking sherry, and um, some well parsley would be good, but uh, dill. I mean, and it's it's incredible. I mean, you just put it in the little toaster oven for 15 minutes, and it's like you were at a gourmet restaurant. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. Fish, is, fish cooks really quickly. Shrimp, shellfish, all of those. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about meat, because I think when people get really confused about uh, protein amounts when they're diagnosed with kidney disease, and I think... Um, I think the literature is saying more of a plant-based diet with some uh, meats. Um, But in the past, there's still this belief out there to eat a low-protein diet. And I know that's been debunked because you're so malnourished (laughs) that you're not getting any protein. Can Can you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. Um, and, you know, Beth, feel, feel free to weigh in. So, you know, the um, I think the, the issue with protein, so the, the World Health Organization, I just keep going back to them because, you know, they're like the dietitians for the planet, right? Um, the recommendation for normal healthy people is 0.8 grams of protein per kilo. And that's uh, actually what we recommend for people with diabetes and chronic kidney disease is that same recommendation. For people who don't have diabetes, we usually can go down to about 0.6. But again, these are sort of normal recommendations for normal, healthy people. Mm-hmm. The problem, again, is in our country, most people eat a lot more protein than that, right? And uh, really, all they do is pee that extra protein out in their urine, and it makes your kidney work harder. So, um, you know, so I, I don't know that the low-protein diet has been debunked. Certainly, we don't see lower-protein uh, diets than that, typically. Um, but, Beth, do you, want, do you want to weigh in on that one, too? Yeah, I agree. And and we're still figuring out the literature for plant-based versus animal-based. In my years of work, we've talked about heavy plant or animal-based protein, and we're now realizing that plant-based is going to be acceptable, that it is useful, and we don't want to eliminate food groups. Right. But we do want to find that right targeted amount of protein. It keeps you nourished. As you said, we don't want to go so low that you're malnourished. That keeps you nourished, but that we're not pushing protein so hard. And we find so many diets push extremely high protein, and we need that balance of fruits and vegetables in there as well for all of the other nutrients our bodies need. Well, and, you know, when we talk about high-protein uh, diets, I mean, I cringe when people are on 
those high protein diets because it's really stressing your kidneys out. It puts you in a state of ketosis, and that's not healthy for your body. <laughs> and I'm like, um, uh, I'm like, well, you really should talk to your doctor about that. And then I hear the opposite of people who are afraid to eat any protein when they've died and they almost become malnourished. So I always say, you know, everybody, your albumin lab value is your friend. And you need to become very acquainted with it. And it needs to be around four. <laughs> and and that'll tell you if you're um, eating too much protein, <laughs> if, if that number is not adequate. Would that, would, would that be accurate? Um, I, I, it's not a, it won't actually go up higher than, um, it, won't, it won't actually go up higher if you're eating more okay. meat. Okay, just if it's too um, low, if you're not eating enough. But it is a good indicator of a low protein intake. Um, so I would certainly be careful, uh, you know, and watch out for that. And you're right, the, so many of those protein supplements, you know, I have seen a couple really interesting studies that, um, so those, a lot of those protein supplements are not like, as Beth says, whole food, right? They're not real food. And a lot of them are um, uh, derived from um, animal hide that is digested with an acid, and then there's a powder left over, and you scrape that up and put it in people's food. It's not something you would normally eat. Um, So first of all, don't consider it a whole food. Secondly, they have to supplement it with amino acids because, yeah, it's not complete. And uh, and then thirdly, there are some studies showing that that kind of protein is like super fast absorbed in your intestine. And so like, you know, when you eat, say, a, a mixed meal of meat and grain and veggies and, um, you know, fruit, uh, the fiber and the fat and all the other things in there slow down the absorption of protein. So it's absorbed relatively slowly over several hours. When you take those uh, collagen proteins, they're called, or any of those, a lot of those protein drinks or protein powders, um, they just go straight into your blood system. Okay. Right? They're so chemically processed, they just suck right in there. <laughs> and uh, that's what's making the kidney work harder. It goes, oh my gosh, I've got all this, this uh, protein waste products. I've got to get rid of this. Where did this come from? It, it all came within 15 minutes instead of two hours. I can't do all this work at once. Right? It's sort of a good way to think about it. So, so again, most of those products are not helpful for people and really... Um, Hardly anyone in America has uh, a problem with not getting enough protein in their diets. Well, and I thought it was fascinating that you talked about, you know, the albumin level because not going too high if you're eating too much protein because it's just coming out in your urine. And uh, before my fourth transplant, my third transplant was, it's called spilling protein. And when they do a urine test, you know, there's different levels of it. And protein, like you said, it it will eventually take out your kidneys if you don't, um, if you don't take care of it so everything that we're saying is leading me exactly to what my passion is is having um people who have ckd as a diagnosis i think every single person should see a kidney dietitian and i would love uh for it to be a mandate across the nation in the same way that it is if you're on dialysis you are given a dietitian as part of the dialysis I would love to have that expand and have uh, dietitians be able to work with people and prevent the need for so much dialysis that we could help slow down the progression of kidney disease. And I think that dietitians are underutilized for the number of people coming into dialysis who say, no, I never saw a dietitian. I never knew I could. 
Oh, I was just going to say, here's a statistic for you. Only about 6% of people with, with, who go on to develop uh, need dialysis, only about 6% of them ever see a dietician before they start dialysis. Right. Well, it's and like a, it's a not really surprising because because our healthcare system is very discombobulated. I mean, we reward people for getting sick instead of preventing people uh, from getting sick, and it's it's changing a little bit with some um, healthcare systems trying to. But I, we talk to people all the time of kidney disease. They they have a hard time finding a dietitian, and it's important that you find a one that's comfortable with kidney disease because uh, I've met dietitians that aren't familiar with it and um, I end up educating them a little bit. Absolutely. You're exactly right, Lori. Let me tell you, I know kidney nutrition. I know renal nutrition. I don't know a thing about neonatal dietetics. It's not my specialty, but the people who do know this specialty know it really well. There are two really good resources to find a dietitian who knows kidney disease. One is the National Kidney Foundation, kidney.org online. You go to their kidney basics, and if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a button you push, and it says, find a dietitian. And that will tell you across the nation, state by state by state, dietitians who know kidney disease. And the other option is to go to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is where we, as dietitians, have our licensure. That's eatright.org, and right on the top corner in orange, it says find a nutrition expert, and you can narrow it to kidney disease. Now, do most insurance providers um, cover the cost of a dietitian if you're in CKD? They do. Once you hit CKD stage three, it is paid for. Oh, that's good to know. And what's really great is that um, we've become a little bit more in a Zoom world, so it might be a little bit easier to see a dietitian because you could do a Zoom interview and get the same benefit as seeing one in person, which probably makes it a little bit more accessible to many people. Absolutely, and and that that issue of finding, uh, you know, when we Beth and I look at these lists, there are some states in the country who only have one or two dietitians listed for uh, chronic kidney disease uh, consulting. So if you live in one of those places, you might want to call somebody who's doing uh, virtual telehealth and um, and get your questions answered that way. Um, we do a lot of, of those kind of calls from here. And, uh, um, you know, in some ways they're, they're a little bit easier because we can, like, say, ask the patient where they normally, what kind of restaurants they normally eat, and we can go online and find those um, websites and show them where to look. And, you know, it's just, uh, it really has changed, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, the accessibility that people can have to a good renal diet, kidney dietitian. Well, in Exactly. If you used to live in a small town that was too far for you to drive to see someone who really knew this specialty, you now have access. And they're even looking at ways to expand uh, having the computers available at your doctor's office or at community centers for you to be able to reach the people that you need to. Well, in, in diabetes and high blood pressure are the two number one causes of kidney failure. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, the diet for diabetes and why it's important to manage your numbers uh, so that you don't further your kidney damage? When your body can't handle sugar, just like Katie was saying about when your body can't handle protein and it spills it in your urine, when your body can't handle the sugar, whether that's Type 1 diabetes, where you don't have insulin to put it into the cell, 
or type 2 diabetes where your metabolism can't keep up, where you make insulin but it's, it's not as easily utilized and you end up storing or not being able to utilize all those sugars, that sugar in the blood goes through the tiny little vessels in the kidneys and clogs those vessels. So we worry about people being uh, prioritizing keeping their blood sugars in control, prioritizing food and medications and doctors and your health are all the things that you can keep doing to help keep your body running the best that it can. If your car wasn't running right, you would take it to the shop to have the oil changed or to have them fix what was wrong. And sometimes we forget to give ourselves the same grace and to take ourselves into the shop to have the oil changed or to be following up to make sure that there aren't things that are going wrong. Well, and there are a lot of um, advancements with diabetes management because they have monitors that run all the time, you know, that you can know what your levels are and try to keep them steady because it's those spikes that really put you in danger. Um, and I've had friends that have got into a diabetic coma. I mean, it's it's scary to watch. Um, and, uh, you know, to think that you got to give them some sugar to, to wake them back up. Um, I'm sure their body's going through a lot of turmoil. Uh, let's let's uh, go over to blood pressure. Maybe you can explain a little bit about, you know, what people need to do to control their blood pressure. Um, I'll take that one because, again, it kind of goes all back all the way back to salt. So, um, you know, most... Um, it, it is kind of interesting when the original uh, dialysis patients, uh, when Dr. Scribner started putting people on dialysis here in Seattle in 1963, within six months, almost all patients were off their blood pressure medications because they followed a really good low-sodium diet and they got dialysis. So um, we don't see that anymore. We see an awful lot of patients on um, uh, high blood pressure medications because their sort of, if you call it native or natural diet, is so much higher in sodium. Um, so that is really still the key. There are people, even people with normal blood, blood pressure, if you decrease their salt intake, their blood pressure will go down. So, so you know, again, we just sort of know this intrinsically. Um, of course, people should take their blood pressure medications, but you know what is really interesting? If you open most of the pa- package inserts on almost every um, blood pressure med, it says to be taken in conjunction with a low-salt diet. And so if you follow that low-salt diet, you may need less high blood pressure medications. You may need less potent ones. Um, it, it's just a, you know, a matter of trying to, I mean, what we want you to do is be as healthy as possible. And, you know, every drug has side effects. We don't want you to stop them. But if there's a way you can reduce your need for them by, by just moderating your diet, that's a lot less uh, invasive, right? So again, that's pretty pretty much our, our kind of focus is to get people on a lower salt diet. Even if your blood pressure is um, normal, it will it will help a lot in protecting your kidneys. Well, I spent many of days on Dr. Scribner's houseboat having lunch with him, and uh, <laughs> and I can remember those conversations. And one point that I think he made very clear is that it takes about 21 days to lose the taste of Mm -hmm. sodium. And if you can limit your sodium for just 21 days, 
and I know this has happened to me too. You know, you go in the hospital for like three weeks or whatever, and you don't have a diet, and you come out and you're like, oh my god, that's salty, um, and and you 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 change the taste, and you no longer need all that sodium to sati- be satisfied with food. So you got to take the 21 day sodium challenge. Yeah, you do. When Dr. Scribner was uh, was uh, actively working, one of the last studies he did was a study that we did with him, and we called it the bread and butter study. So we specifically found patients who really, now these were dialysis patients, but I'm sure the same thing would be true with CKD. They, um, they had high fluid gains. They had a pretty high salt diet, and they got thirsty, and they, uh, and they drank a lot of fluid. And so what we did is we gave them one of the biggest contributors of salt in the American diet is bread. So when I was a student in 1975, a slice of bread had 120 milligrams of sodium. Now most bread has about 250. So if you have a slice of toast in the morning, a sandwich with two pieces of bread for lunch, and say a roll for dinner, that's about 1,000 milligrams. It's two-thirds of your diet in bread, which is not what most people would consider a salty food, right? Mm -hmm. So all we did was we gave patients low-salt bread and low-salt butter. Those are super uh, easy products and we just ask them to incorporate them into their weekly diet and not use regular salted butter or regular salted bread. What was fascinating is all of the patients had decreases in their weight weight gains, some as much as three kilos of fluid, that's three liters of fluid that they didn't drink during the week. Their blood pressures all went down. And here's the great part. A year later, they were still following the low-salt diet because they had seen that it worked. Well, and I think what's really fascinating about that point is, uh, and I witnessed it because in the mid-90s, um, I sold the crit line. So, full disclosure, I, I love the crit line because it really showed that, you know, 90% of, um, and this was the statistic back then uh, from a study, is 90% of all high blood pressure is due to fluid overload. And I thought that was a fascinating, um, and it, and fluid hides in your body. I mean, it goes to your tissues, it goes different places. But um, I worked at a companion animal hemodialysis unit with the crit line. Now, this was very hard, but these dogs were on dialysis up at UC Davis. And they didn't have any fluid. They didn't have any fluid to remove because they're not social drinkers and they could control their diet. (laughs) <laughs> and um, and I just thought that was fascinating because their treatment was actually pretty easy because they didn't have the fluid gains. That's what makes dialysis treatments difficult is when you have a lot of fluid to lose. Um, or that's one of the things that can make it difficult. So um, I always remember that analogy. And I know even with having being in different stages of CKD, based on the sodium, you know, you can tell if your rings fit or, you know, oh, my shoe feels a little tighter at the end of the day because my foot's swollen from it's all sodium <laughs> and i gotta yeah, check that bread awesome. now come on dave dave's yeah, white killer bread it. we'll just <laughs> yeah it's really uh it's really uh kind of insidious um so anyway one one suggestion i often have for people is corn tortillas are super low in sodium and so if you can substitute those for bread for example um, I do have some patients who make their own bread. They're quite, uh, you know, interested in a whole foods diet, and so they they do that. Um, on our website, we have lots of recipes for, for example, low sodium biscuits using low sodium baking powder or baking soda. So there's another way you could incorporate bread into your diet that is low sodium. So there are a lot of ways to 
do it, um, they just take a little more effort than uh, than picking up a loaf, you know, a nice French loaf in the grocery store, and then because uh, probably when you cut those, it's more than two fifty, right? You cut them thicker. Uh, I know that you know what they have, uh, and I'll have to go check the the salt content. I I'm guilty. I did not check the bread, but they have Dave's white killer bread, the little thin slices. And I I love those. I love it. I mean, it's only yeah. like um, and those are those are lower. So any of those thin, I can't get what they call them, sandwich slices. They have a name for them. Uh, they are a little bit lower. And uh, and so again, it's just a matter of you know turning that package over and looking at the at the sodium content and making the best choice you can. Right. I know. And and trying not to be tempted by the you know cinnabon smell or something coming from wherever you're at. <laughs> I mean, that's helped me a little yeah, bit really using hard, Instacart. Right? I mean, I've been using Instacart with COVID, and it has helped me because I can shop and I can look at the labels uh, when you're shopping, you know, which is really great because right. it always has a copy of the label. And um, when you're at the store, you sometimes feel like, oh, I just got to get get out of here. Let me just grab that. <laughs> oh, Lori, that is such a great example. I have to tell you, so in nutrition, we talk about different kinds of choices. And when you make a really logical scientific, uh, measured, investigative choice like that, it's called a cold decision. You're, you're not letting your emotions, you're not hungry, you're not in a hurry, you're not, your feet aren't sore and you just want to go home, right? You're making a really logical decision and when you do that and you kind of let that part of your brain kick in, you go, whoa, this bread is way higher, This bre- I think I'll order this bread or I like this bread, but this bread, you know, it's the same brand, but it's, you know, lower sodium or whatever, but when you walk into that grocery store or you smell the cinnamons, that's why they've done that, right? They're trying to get you to make a hot decision. There's a great study on high school students. They had two choices. They could order their lunches when they got to school in the morning, you know, do a touchpad thing and order what they wanted for lunch, or they could just wait till lunchtime and then go through the line and pick whatever they wanted. The kids who ordered, uh, you know, on the tablet ahead of time, their sodium intake was half of what kids were going through the line because the kids going through the line were hungry, tired. They wanted to spend time with their friends. They didn't want to wait in the line. They just took the first thing in the line, and it was usually the pizza, the saltiest choice. I I totally relate to that because I know that I've been out, you know, on a sales call or meeting somebody and then, you know, it's time for lunch and I'm like, oh, I need to get something and I'm driving down the street and I can't figure out. And, you know, it's it's really preparation is key. Yeah, yeah, it and, is. And, you know, knowing what you're going to eat so you can plan is is the best the best medicine to eat a good diet. Um, I, I totally agree. And having healthy choices and different options in your house that you can mix together. Um, well, well, this has been fascinating, Katie and Beth. Um, it's uh, any closing thoughts that we can share with the audience? I mean, we could probably speak to you for a couple hours on this subject, but I think this has been a good guy. <laughs> Days, days. We could talk to you for days. Um, well, you know, I guess going back to Beth's recommendation, we really encourage people to see a dietitian. You know, we we think we're pretty good nutrition experts, and finding somebody who's a renal specialist, I think, is really important. Um, as Beth said, I don't know anything about taking care of kids, but I know an awful lot about taking care of people. You know, who have uh, stage three, four, or five 
uh, kidney failure. Um, so that's one thing that I think people can do. The, the second thing is to, to do just what you're doing when you're shopping is to look at those labels, try and make the best choices, try and get 1,500 milligrams of sodium a day. That's just a good limit for everybody. It, you know, whether you have CKD or not, everybody should be on 1,500 milligrams. So, you know, let's get everybody in the country healthy. Uh, so that's a pretty easy second uh, choice. And um, and always stay on the outer edge of the grocery store. Do not become victim of going into those aisles because it's just all processed food. Yep. Leave your cart at the end and walk down. And if you can't carry it, you're buying too many processed food. Okay. That's a good idea. Okay. And what was uh, the uh, another closing thought? Seeing your doctor, making sure you're doing checkups, following their advice, taking and following the medication orders. Obviously, if you're smoking, work for stopping, and then work on eating foods you can picture growing. The more whole foods and fewer processed foods, the better. Prioritizing your health because you're important. Every single person is important. And it does, you don't have to be a dietitian to make good food choices. I think a lot of us know what to be doing and it's prioritizing the time to do it. Oh, one, one subject we didn't mention was drinks. Um, can you just uh, chime in a little bit about liquid beverages? Yeah, Katie and I jokingly say people like to talk about, uh, you know, doing cleanses and smoothies and things like that. And Katie and I both jokingly say, yeah, I like to chew my food. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. drinks, should be, drinks should be drinks, um, but drinks shouldn't be food. And trying to, again, find something that's going to nurture your health versus something that you can't necessarily picture growing or um, that you that you know is not going to be supporting your health goal. Well, and I think... And, and I guess, too, Lori, you know, we do have... Uh, sometimes patients are told when they have CKD that they should drink more fluid. Sometimes they just decide to do that on their own. Sometimes, you know, towards the later stages, they may be told to be watching their fluid. But it all goes back to sodium. If you follow a 1,500-milligram sodium diet, you won't be thirsty. I follow that diet. Um, and uh, I drink about three 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, sometimes a little bit more, but not much. Um because I'm not thirsty, right? So everything that is driving those that fluid is thirst. And then um, my husband has this great line. He tells people, this good dietitian I know told me to eat my calories, not drink them. Because a lot of Americans, you know, some Americans drink half of their calories in a day. Mm-hmm. It is so easy to just like get that smoothie or that latte or whatever. Um, when you look at some of those calories of some of those coffee beverages, they're like seven or 800 calories. That that's half of your daily intake. And the interesting thing about fluid is it doesn't trigger a feeling of fullness. You know, you know how we used to tell people, oh, drink a glass of water before you eat dinner and then you won't be so hungry? Mm-hmm. That's not actually true. Fluid <laughs> leaves the stomach faster and so when people when people drink a lot of fluid, it just basically goes into their gut pretty quickly. Depends on what else you're eating and all that. But anyway, the the whole point is that they tend to drink and then still eat the same amount of food. They've done a lot of studies. They'll drink 16 ounces but eat the same amount of food they would have eaten if they didn't drink that 16 ounces. So if that 16 ounces has calories in it, if it's juice or whatever, then they're going to get those calories plus whatever they eat. I mean, 
you know, even I, I said to my husband one time, so would you eat five oranges? Would you like sit down and peel and section and eat five oranges? I said, you'd get so tired of chewing and it would take you like half an hour, but you can drink, you know, a cup and a half of orange juice in like, I don't know, 30 seconds, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It just, it just doesn't give you a time to feel full. So anyway, we're... Beth and I are big fans of water. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's really important because I, well, I need, full disclosure, I need to have a cup of coffee in the morning or I'm not human. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I've also learned, too, if I like iced tea, to fresh brew it and not buy those bottled teas because they have so many preservatives. Again, you got to read the even they the labels do. of those bottles. And they have a lot of phosphate and um, things that are not good for you to, you know, we don't really need it. But um, occasionally, you know, you, you have one when you're out on the road and you got to get something to drink. I mean, that's fine, but don't make it a daily habit. Uh, but, um, well, this has been great, Katie and Beth. Thank you so much for your expertise and dedication to the kidney community. I know um, we all appreciate all of your uh, support and knowledge, and especially to this topic. And I know Dr. Scribner is probably smiling down on both of you. He probably is. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.